Uh, we're going to go ahead and jump into our series today, or our sermon today. We're our last week of our series, Relationships, The Struggle is Real. And we've been looking at a lot of different aspects to relationships and the different struggles that we can have uh, in our social relationships. Last week, we talked about the value of being in a community of other believers and how there is value when you have brothers and sisters in Christ next to you. And I gave you a challenge to invite someone that you've never ate before, uh, dinner with before, and invite them to dinner. A lot of you guys have been doing that because I've been hearing about you going out and having a meal together. I want to encourage you to continue to do that. Uh, as 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 we you know all know, this last year has just been a complete mess with uh, COVID, and and we have not had those social interactions. And man, a lot of us we just need to get out of our house some. And so take this opportunity, find someone you've never broken bread with, and say let's go have a meal together. Now today, as I said, we're in our last sermon of this series. And we're going to be looking at when there is conflict between us as believers. Because we have to understand something, and we all know it to be true. Even Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, will have relationship struggles with each other from time to time. There's going to be sins committed against one another, towards one another, and we need to be aware of this so that we know how to overcome those issues. If we're not on guard, when sin is committed against us from a brother or sister in Christ, the church can quickly descend into chaos. And unfortunately, more than one of us in this room have witnessed church infighting, church division, or church splits. And sometimes this division and infighting is so dumb that it's almost comical. Have you ever been to a heated business meeting in a church? I was in a heated business meeting one time. I hope no one is watching this that was at this previous church. This was about 15 years ago, okay? It was three, four churches ago. We had someone who wanted to give the church $400,000 to build a youth facility. Praise God for that, right? He had one stipulation. He said, I think you can build a building for $400,000. I think it's more than enough. You just have to break ground in six months. I was like, give me a shovel, baby. I can go out there and start digging right now. I mean, simple, right? You know what happened? We had a, we had a two-hour business meeting at this particular church arguing over if we can pull this off or not because we needed an industrial kitchen. You know what happened? Six months later, that man took his money back. Why? Because the church was arguing and fighting with one another. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Well, I was reading this article from a church leader. His name's Thomas Rayner, if you're familiar with him. And he asked a question on social media. What is the craziest thing you've ever seen people in your church fight about? And here's some of the responses that he was saying sent through social media. He said that there was an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Now that seems like an odd thing to argue about, but I was thinking about it this morning. If our worship pastor started growing a beard, I think I'd have something to say about that as well. You know what I mean? I'm kind of married to her and that wasn't part of the vows, you know? (laughs) They said that there was a fight over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. <laughs> That's awesome. There was, there was a church dispute on whether or not to install a restroom stall dividers in the women's bathroom. <laughs> now, that doesn't seem like something worth arguing about. I mean, could you imagine going to that church and visiting, and there's not, you walk in, you're like, hey, welcome to the family. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's a That's a weird family. There was, a, there was a church argument to decide if the clock in the worship center should be removed. That's kind of weird to me. 
There was a big church argument when they discovered that the church budget was off by 10 cents. And the guy said, I kid you not, finally someone gave a dime to settle the whole issue. There's a church business uh, meeting argument about whether the church should purchase a weed eater. It said it took two business meetings to purchase the weed eater. An argument over whether the church should serve deviled eggs as a church meal. <laughs> this last one, this one's pretty good. There was a dis disagreement over whether the term potluck should be used instead of pot blessing. <laughs> We're just going to leave that there. As silly as those reasons are for people to argue and sin against each other, unfortunately, if you've spent any time in church at all, you understand that church infighting and division and conflict is bound to happen. And when there is church infighting, someone is always in sin. Let's just get that right to begin with, because the scripture makes it very clear that we are to be on guard and fight for unity. We shouldn't fight against each other. Because Jesus told us in John that our love for one another was a virtue that would bear witness to the fact that Jesus Christ was alive and living in us, and that we were indeed his followers. Having said all of that, Jesus also understood that sin was going to happen in the church from time to time, and that Christians would indeed sin against each other because we're not perfect. We all know that you're flawed, I'm flawed, we are all imperfect people, and as a result, there's bound to be conflict between us from time to time. So when a brother or sister in Christ sins against you, how are you to respond? That is the question that we're going to look into today. And if you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter number 18. Matthew chapter number 18. We're going to start reading in verse number 15. Matthew 18, starting verse number 15. It says this. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it shall be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in among them." Now, what is the context of Jesus' teaching? He's very succinct in this passage. He's very to the point. What is the context? Well, if you read the entire chapter of Matthew 18, Jesus is in a long discourse dealing with sin, the effect of sin, and the desire of God to, to rescue us from our sins and the response that we are to have when other people sin against us. And so I'd highly encourage you to go read the entire chapter when you get home because it will give you a greater understanding of the context 
context of what we're discussing today. Here's something we need to understand out of the gate that we all know to be true. We've already referenced it. All relationships will have conflict. Even Christian relationships are going to run into conflict from time to time. This should lead us to a couple of conclusions right from the very beginning. We can't begin to resolve conflict until we come to some conclusion. And the thing that we need to understand is this. We shouldn't avoid conflict in the church. We should deal with conflict in the church. How many of you, when conflict starts to come in your family, you try to just avoid it? Because your thought process is, if I don't address it, it will go away. Yeah, that's called the flight mentality. How many of you are the opposite? You see a problem, buddy? We are jumping full scale into this thing right now. How many of you are married to the exact opposite person? Okay. <laughs> Most of us, right? Opposites do indeed attract. A lot of people have the attitude towards conflict that we should just stick our head in the sand and avoid it. But this is not what Jesus is teaching us in this passage. When there is conflict, when there is sin between believers, it must be dealt with. It cannot be allowed to fester. We shouldn't be surprised by conflict, but we should indeed face it when it comes. Why is there conflict between believers? If we're true believers, shouldn't we always be in harmony with one another? If we are true believers, how can we sin against one another? Well, what Jesus is teaching is making very clear is that believers can and do sin against each other from time to time. And Jesus is not teaching us about outsiders sinning against us. He's teaching us about believers because he calls the individual if your brother sins against you. So how could believers sin against each other? Well, we've addressed this because we're human. We're flawed people. In the process of sanctification, and until we reach sanctification, the, the fullness of the image of Christ, and we are never going to achieve that on this side of heaven, we are by default going to wound and sin against one another. And this truth leads us to the big idea. Conflict is a great opportunity to live the gospel before the world. We see conflict between brothers and sisters in Christ as a bad thing. And let's acknowledge it's not a great thing. It's not a good thing. However, conflict between brothers and sisters in Christ is the perfect opportunity to live the gospel out to the world. We understand what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And as I say all the time, if there's good news, that must mean there's bad news. And what's the bad news? The scripture makes it clear that we were all sinners uh, towards each other and towards God. And as a result of our sin, we were separated from God with no hopes of rescuing ourselves. There was a penalty associated to, with sin, and that's, that penalty is death. But God did not want to stay separated between you and I. Jesus left heaven, came to earth, lived as a man, a perfect, sinless life, laid down his life as a perfect sacrifice for our sin, and rose from the dead so that you and I can rise to new life and a new hope in Christ. The entire gospel message is about reconciliation. The entire gospel message is about God reaching out and trying to draw us back into himself. So if the gospel is about reconciliation between God and man, when we practice reconciliation with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are painting a tangible picture of the gospel message to the world. When we overcome conflict, 
We're painting a picture of redemption to a lost and broken world. We show the world through our conflict what Christ desires to do in their own life. Therefore, one of the most spiritual things we can do as believers is learn how to reconcile our sins between one another so that we can reflect our Heavenly Father. Letting sin fester between brothers and sisters is not an option, for that is not how our Heavenly Father acted towards us. He dealt with our sin. So I think that it's fairly obvious the value of reconciliation. We understand that there's value with reconciliation. The problem is the process of reconciliation, because it's never an easy process. Reconciling sin between brothers and sisters is a difficult task to manage. In this, pro- in this passage that we just read, Jesus laid out some principles for us for reconciliation. He, he laid out some principles, and then he laid out a process. Well, let's look at the principles first. What are the principles of reconciliation? When your brother or sister sinned against you, we must remember that grace is over grudge. Grace is of greater value than grudges. Jesus starts out this passage by saying, if your brother has sinned against you, Now, we need to make a distinction right away. This context is teaching about sin, not insult. This passage is teaching about sin, not offense. People will offend us from time to time, but that doesn't necessarily mean they sinned against us. This is a very important distinction to make. Our lives are to be marked by grace. We have received grace from God. Grace is ultimately a summary of the mercy, the forgiveness, the love of God. And since we have received grace from God, we should be quick to show the grace of God towards others. People will offend us from time to time because people have had a bad day or they're stressed out or they're tired. And as a result of fatigue in life, they're going to get in the flesh from time to time and they're going to be abrasive towards us and they're going to offend us. Other times, it's just simply going to be a a misunderstanding or a lack of communication starts to break down and it causes us to hurt or or wound one another. And those moments can cause real pain. They They can leave a sting. They can wound. However, the question that every believer needs to ask themselves in these moments is this. Did this person sin against me to the point that I need to address it with them? Or is this a situation I can exercise grace and overlook an offense? For Proverbs 12, 13 tells us this, the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. As brothers and sisters, we need to let love reign in our life, and that means that we assume the best about other people. We assume the best about what, what we are interactions with other people, so I, I'm quick I'm quick to overlook an insult because I assume the best about the person. I assume they're just having a bad day. It is a bad day. Is Bill Goldner here? I can't tell. I can't see with the lights. I don't think he's here this morning, but Bill Goldner is probably one of the biggest champions in my life. I mean, I could be standing over a dead body with a bloody knife and Bill Goldner would say, man, you're a good guy, you know, and hit me on the back. <laughs> I don't, every time I'm around him, he looks for an opportunity to tell me, hey, you're doing a good job. You're doing a good job. Now, that's his character. That's his nature. I've seen that over the last two years. Let's pretend for the sake of argument, I'm standing out in the foyer on Sunday morning and Bill walks out and he looks at me and he just shakes his head and says, boy, I tell you, mm, and he just turns around and walks off. That's it. Now, your first thought would be like, what in the world was that all about? That's out of character for him. So I have two options. I can either A, get mad, 
take offense and hold a grudge and say, well, Bill Goldner, I don't like him one bit. I can't believe he'd do that to me like that. (laughs) That's how we do that, right? Or I can say, you know what? That was out of character for Mr. Goldner. I bet he's just having a bad day. And just overlook it, move on. It's my observation that a lot of infighting in the church is not rooted in sin, but it's actually rooted in offense. And we need to let grace reign in the latter. Now, what if your brother or sister really has sinned against you? I mean, this is a, a real thing. This isn't a bad day. They, they've gossiped about us about something that's not true. Or perhaps they've lied about you. Or perhaps maybe they've stolen from you. Or perhaps there's jealousy or they had a fit of rage. Or perhaps, you, you know, you find them in a drunken state. Or maybe you know that you've, you've discovered that something's going on in their life that is really bad. What do you do when your brother or sister sins against you or you find them in sin? Well, we address the sin in love is what Christ is calling us to do. When a brother sins against us, we must remember grace over grudges. We also must remember restoration over revenge. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, then you are to go to them. You're to go to them. The principle is this, when our brothers sin against us, then we are to go to them because we have a desire for restoration and not for revenge. As believers, we don't get revenge. We don't get even. We don't try to win the argument. Because if we get revenge, even if we get even, even if we win the argument at the expense of unity, then we've lost in the eyes of Christ. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. Apparently, this church has some serious infighting. I mean, apparently, the worship leader's beard was really long, and everybody was getting mad at each other because they were actually taking each other to court and suing them. I mean, it, that, that would make for an interesting Sunday morning service, wouldn't it? And so Paul says to them, he said, the fact that you're suing one another in a court of law shows that you are already defeated. The outcome of that court case is not going to dictate if you won or not. I can tell you from over here, writing you a letter, you have already lost. He said it'd be better to be wronged. It'd be, rather, it'd be better to be defrauded than to try to get revenge on someone else who you would call a brother or sister. So we must seek restitution and unity at all costs. We seek restitution even when we don't want to because we have a faith of reconciliation. And since Christ reconciled us to the Father, we don't allow sin to separate us from our brothers. We seek restitution because we're going to spend eternity with them in heaven. When our brother or sister in Christ sins against us, we must remember grace over grudges, revenge, excuse me, restoration over revenge, and we must remember unity over validation. Jesus said that if your brother or sister goes to them and you talk to them about it and you resolve the problem, he said, good. You have gained a brother. And this teaches us that there is more value in the relationship with the saint than there is in being right. There's more value in unity than in validation. Therefore, that keeps our, 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 our problems with one another in proper perspective. You know, we laughed a few minutes ago at the churches that were, that were fighting over just stupid things. How can a believer get into an argument over purchasing a weed eater? I mean, that makes no sense. Why did these people argue over such, 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 in, such 
frivolous things, such small things, such things that don't matter. Why did they do that? Because of their pride. Had nothing to do with weed eaters. Had nothing to do with if we're going to build a playground. Had everything to do with pride. And once we stick the stake in the ground and we're trying to fight for our pride, we will do terrible things towards other people. So this is the heart of a believer. I have grace over grudges. I have restoration over revenge. And I have unity over validation. This is how I am to approach reconciliation. Because we're about to walk through the process Jesus laid out. But if, if, if my heart isn't right, my perspective on this isn't right, the process isn't going to play out properly. If I start trying to walk through the process with my goal of being right or getting revenge, then the process isn't going to work. If I try to start the process getting validation without unity, the process isn't going to work. So I need to approach the process in a proper manner. Now that we've talked about the principles, what is the process of reconciliation? Step one, private connection. You have to go to your brother or sister. Jesus tells us that if our brother or sister sins against us, we need to go to them privately. The goal of this step in the process is to keep the matter as quiet as possible. We're not to gossip about the problem. We're not to build a coalition of people on our side. Rather, we're to go to them and to discuss the issue. And I think we need to dive deep right here for a second. How do I know if I should start the process? How do I know if this is a sin or if it's an offense? How do I determine this? Well, here's a grid. Was the, was the offense a biblical sin? Meaning, can I turn to a passage in verse and say, yep, what this person did was something I need to approach. They gossiped about me and that, that really wounded me and I need to talk to them. Did the offense hurt your pride or wound your heart? If it hurt my pride, maybe I can overlook it. But if there's a deep scar in my heart, then I need to go to my brother. Is this an offense, a pattern in the person's life, or is it an isolated incident? Can I let this go, or am I struggling to get over it? Every situation is unique, so knowing when to take the first step in the process can be very difficult. And I can't give you a direct answer in this format, but going through that grid can help you determine if you need to go to a brother or sister or not. Once you have determined that this is offense, is a true sin that you need to address with your brother or sister, then you need to get the courage to set up an appointment where you can talk about this situation with the other believer. When you approach the conversation with a high level of grace, I promise you the outcome is going to be better. Grace is just a humble disposition towards another person. And if you read the entire chapter of Matthew 18, what you'll see is that he really sets this up talking about the nature of a child. Children are humble and they're caring and they're gentle. And that's how you approach conflict with a brother or sister. You approach it with humility. You approach it with a gentle spirit to try to bring up this with your brother or sister so that you can resolve it. An abundance of love must be the attitude. When you go with grace to your brother or your sister, you need to declare your intent. You say, look, you know, I'm coming to you because this is an issue that, that has really wounded me deeply. I'm not coming to you to get even. I'm not coming to get validation. I'm looking for restoration in this relationship between you and me. You mean more to me than this issue. I'm trying to follow the teaching of Christ. This is what the scripture tells me. That's why I'm, I'm coming to you. I want this to be okay. And if you set up the conversation with that humble, gentle perspective saying, look, I'm trying to follow the teaching of Jesus, I promise you that the outcome is going to be better. At this point, when you set this up, you patiently, 
and gracefully point out the sin, be willing to listen to the other person's side. Perhaps the entire situation was a misunderstanding. Perhaps they didn't know that they sinned against you. The verb that Jesus uses, he says, and show him his sin means to bring conviction. The heart is not to win an argument with your brother or sister. Now, let's acknowledge a few things here. This is very difficult to have these type of conversations. It's very difficult to go to someone and say, look, I felt like you did something that hurt me. That's hard to start that conversation. However, over the years, I've encouraged many people to go through this process, and you know what I've observed? Most of the time, people are more worried about the conversation than they need to be. Most of the time, believers are quick to resolve their conflicts and restore the relationship. Most people wish they had went sooner because the outcome was so good. They say, a weight's been lifted off my life. In my observation, 95% of the time, this is the only step that's needed for restoration. Two believers who value the word of God, who value one another as family, who are filled with the Holy Spirit can resolve conflict quickly between the two of them. Somebody just has to go first. However, there are rare disputes in which there is a need of a mediator. And Jesus addresses this, which leads to step number two in the process of restoration. Small group clarification. Go to a mediator. If you go to your brother or sister, you approach it in grace and humility, and you're trying to resolve the conflict, and you too can't come to an agreement, then you need to go to step two. Hopefully, it's taken care of step one. Chances are, I've never seen anybody come to me and say, hey, I need to have a mediator. This is a rare occurrence. Most of the time, solved in step one. But if not, you have to go to step two. Now, I need to show you something here because this is really important to help frame the teaching. I want to read this to you again. Verse 15, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault between the two of you alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you, that everything, every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, scholars struggle to interpret the phrase, If your brother sins against you. In the original Greek that this was written in, the manuscript, the expression uh, against you isn't in the text. And so scholars are trying to interpret what is it exactly that Jesus is saying. Is he saying this is a conflict between two believers? Or is Jesus talking about if I witness someone in sin, what do I do? For the purposes today, we're going to say that it could be either one. And that's what scholars have come down to. If my brother sins against me, this is the process I follow. If I witness, say, a brother who is, who is embezzling money from his company, and I know that to be a fact, this is also the process I would follow with him. And I want to make that clear for you. So if fellow believers are in a situation, they cannot seem to bring reconciliation to the, to the situation for whatever reason, they are not to surrender to the conflict. They are continued to work through the conflict by going to a trusted mediator. This mediator is to be a neutral third party who proves to love Jesus and is full of wisdom. This could be the pastor of a church. This could be a deacon, a church leader, or a combination of those people. Here's the key uh, effectiveness to this point. The key is willingness of both parties to surrender to the judgment of the mediator. If one or both of the parties go, with the meet, go to the mediator with the intention of just trying to prove their case to win the argument, then this step is not going to work. 
this step will only be valid when you go with a willing heart to actually listen to sound counsel. The mediators to use the word of God as a framework to bring reconciliation to the situation. And hopefully with the mediator's voice of reason, reconciliation can happen. However, if one or both of the believers is unwilling to, to leave their life of sin or to fix the problem, then Jesus gives us step three. The situation will require then for the people to go to the church. And that leads to step three, church abolition, taking it to the church. Jesus' teaching here is that a believer who is in sin and refuses to repent of that sin after being confronted by a fellow believer and and in front of a group of mediators is to then take the situation to the church. The question is, for us, does the church mean two or three leaders in judgment or the entire church? There's some actually some debate on this. We have evidence in the New Testament where, in one case, it was to the entire church. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6, as I referenced a moment ago, if you turn back in chapter 5, there is a, uh, an account where Paul is writing to the church saying, look, you have a man who is in the church and he is sleeping with his father's wife. Ooh, that's a problem. He's like, and you guys are cool with this. This is a problem, man. You need to deal with this. Perhaps this man was in leadership. I don't know. We don't know the backgrounds. But he says, you guys need to deal with this. This is egregious sin. This is a problem. So when Jesus says, take it to the church, when Paul says, take it to the church, does that mean we stand up on a Sunday morning, announce somebody's sin, and air out their dirty laundry? No, I don't think that's the intent of this passage. I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is getting to. Here's the principle. If there is a brother in a situation, then you need to go to that person, and the church needs to be aware of to the level of their leadership. I think it's important to recognize a few things. This teaching is dealing with church members, not people who are attending a church. And there's a very important distinction to make here. Because the level of involvement and leadership dictates the path of discipline. Let me explain what I mean. I am your pastor. If I was to, God forbid, steal money from the church, and the deacon board was to find out about that, they would need to go through a few things. Number one, they would need to instantly terminate my position. Because I have now ruined the opportunity for me to pastor this church. The second thing they would then have to do is they'd have to stand up here on a platform, and they'd have to explain the situation. They'd say, church, look. Our pastor, he sinned, stole money from the church. We figured out where he went and why it went that way. We have removed him, and here's the plan going forward. They'd have a responsibility to do that. Why? Because I'm the pastor. If one of our deacons or one of our staff were caught in a moral failure, then it would be my responsibility to stand up in front of the church and give some detail, not every detail of the situation, And what was going to happen? Why? Because they're leaders in the church and they're held at a higher standard. We knew this getting into it. When I say we, we as pastors, because we read the Bible and the Bible tells us that when you want to be a pastor, that's great, but you're going to be held to a higher standard. And so when I break that, they have a responsibility to bring it out. Now, let's say, what if it's a church member? What if a church member is caught in egregious, unrepentant sin? they'd have to be removed from church membership. Someone who is not following Christ, who is living an unrepentant life, 
who is not looking to fix the problem, who says, no, there's no problem here, nothing to see here. How can that person have a voice in the direction of the church? They can't. Now, does that mean you stand up on a Sunday morning and air out their dirty laundry? Of course not. Why? Because that's not their level of leadership. That's not their level of influence. My conviction of the matter in that scenario is that church leadership takes care of it as discreetly as possible to help protect the person, hopefully lead them to repentance. Now, what if a, ch- what if a person who's just attending the church, who's not a member, is an egregious sin? Well, they're not confessing believers. They're just here. And we, we're thankful to God for that. And that's how you keep balance. That's how you keep balance. You preach the truth. If you want to be in leadership like I do, then you're held to a higher standard. If you want to be a member of the church, when you go through the next steps, we tell you there's some requirements, there's some things we're asking from. No one has to become members. But Jesus gave us these outlines. Here's what we have to understand about this teaching from Christ. Everyone is on a journey of sanctification. And as such, we need to, te- we need to, we need to treat people with the respect to their level of Christian maturity. I'm in a different place than maybe you are. You might be farther along down the road than I am. Just as your children get older, you expect more from their behavior. So too, what Jesus is teaching, pastors, deacons, department leaders are held at a higher standard and are expected to live to that standard that maybe new believers or non-professing believers live to. I hope that makes sense. I hope that settles kind of some of that question. The fourth and final step that we see is church excommunication. When a believer is approached about their sin, either against another brother or sister or just in general, there is a clear biblical mandate laid out here before us that if they're unwilling to repent of their sin, then they would need to ask to be to leave. Let's pretend that one of our deacons, again, God forbid, we catch them in a situation that would compromise their witness of Christ. We go to them and say, look, you need to get this fixed. I mean, you're no longer going to be on the deacon board, but you need to get this fixed. And the person's like, no, I ain't fixing that. Okay, well then you cannot be in fellowship with us then because you're a leader and we cannot allow leaders to live the way that you are because it's a bad witness for Christ. Now, this is clear teaching of Christ that goes against everything about our Western culture. And I think we need to address a few things here very quickly. Remember, we are discussing real egregious sin. We're not saying someone had a bad day and slipped and said a cuss word. Right? We're not talking about a moment of fleeting anger. We're talking about a pattern of unrepentant sin. This idea doesn't settle well for a lot of us. Is it right for church members to confront each other about their sin? I mean, who made us judge? Well, apparently Jesus did in this passage because he said, if, he, if someone sins against you, you need to deal with it. You need to go to that person. This process that we're reading about isn't man's idea. This is Christ's idea. We're not to let things fester between us. We need to deal with things quickly. He again goes on to give us something very powerful. In verse number 19, he says, Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask will be done by my Father in heaven, for where two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I am among you. 
Now this verse, if two or three are gathered, is the favorite verse to go to when not very many people show up for Bible study, right? <laughs> like, like, hey, there's only five of us here tonight, but Jesus said where two or three are gathered, he's there. We're like, yes, that makes us feel better, okay, because we're not wasting our time. But we need to see the context of this passage. Jesus is speaking of church discipline. He's speaking of restoration right before this sentence, and he's teaching about forgiveness right after this sentence of believers. So here's what he's saying. You have a responsibility to maintain unity. I'm putting you in charge. If two or three are you getting together, then I'm there, and you have a responsibility to represent me well. You are my body. You are my representation to the world. I am there among you, so you have to deal with conflict. We have God's word. We have his spirit. We should be able to deal with conflict and not get to a place where we're arguing for weeks on end over buying weed eaters. There are so many more important things in life. We have to deal with conflict among us. As believers, we have a responsibility to guard ourselves and to manage our affairs. Why? Obviously, the scripture makes a big deal of this whole thing. We've read a lot of scripture this morning. Why? Because the reputation reputation of Christ's church matters. He's coming for a spotless bride. And in our day and age, we allow too many Christian leaders running around in rampant sin and it's damaging the reputation of the church. In our day and age, we're allowing too many things to, def- to defeat us, to divide us, and it's damaging to the reputation of the church. We have to approach this stuff well. It matters. So, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? We approach things well. We approach things well. When conflict arises, we deal with it. The goal of this entire message, the goal of Jesus' entire teaching is restoration. Now, you might be sitting here this morning, and you realize that there's conflict between you and someone else. Let me tell you something. You have to put this into practice. might be the hardest thing you ever do. There might be somebody in this building that you've had a grudge with for years, decades. Maybe it doesn't affect you too much. Maybe you haven't said anything about it, but you got to deal with it. You cannot allow things to fester. I want to close with this if the worship team wants to come back. This entire teaching from Jesus shows us the value of church covenant. Shows us the value of each other. We can't allow sin, much less offense, separate us as brothers and sisters. We need to reconcile the body. We need to have grace in the body. We need to have unity in the body. Therefore, sometimes we have to approach our brother or sister who have sinned against us. Too many times believers have broken fellowship because one sinned against another. so-and-so sinned against me, so-and-so said this, and I I just can't, can't go back. We have to allow the gospel to reign in our life. We have to allow the gospel of restoration and reconciliation that we've experienced between us and the Father dictate and flow out of our hearts 
towards other people in our lives. The problem is, is that requires us to take steps of action, and those steps aren't always easy to take. So maybe you're here this morning, and your heart's starting to kind of stir within you, and you realize, okay, I can instantly go to the person in my life that I need to go talk to, I need to have a conversation with. I want to tell you this. It takes a high level of courage to do that. But if you do, you can gain a brother or sister back. You have unity in the church, which is of more value than anything else. Because I don't know if you've looked around, but the world's pretty much in chaos. The only thing we are going to have that we're going to be able to take into eternity with us is the relationships that you have with the people sitting next to you. That is of eternal value that you can take to heaven with you someday.